you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Handheld microphone. This is going to be interesting. Oh, I don't even know. Like I do this thing when I preach. And all right, but my sister, she is the polar opposite of me. I uh, in school did the bare minimum to achieve the results necessary to keep my family happy. Uh, if I could not do the work and be an A B student. Why do the work? Why bust my butt to get the best grades? Uh, I was fine being in the top 10 10 of my class. My sister demanded perfection. She was the salutatorian of her high school class. She swears to this day she would have been valedictorian if it weren't for Adrian. Adrian, who had her mother for junior English and got an A when nobody else got an A, and that was the 0.01% difference between their grades that made Allison the salutatorian, and Adrian, the valedictorian. Allison was the one who took ballet and tap and jazz and dance for all these years and demanded perfection from herself. She had to have the best solo and do the best dances. I'm the one who, when I didn't make middle school baseball, just quit playing. I'm the one who, when they told me that I wasn't going to get into music school, pretended that I had never picked up a violin in my life. For me, eh. We were very different kids for our parents, too. Allison was sweet and kind and yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. I was known to be a little bit grumpy and a little bit, no, I'm not doing that. That manifested in me feeling like they were always yelling at me and she was always the good one. We have found video that has proven my point. We found a video from the the cabins where we vacationed every year that showed that when when Allison wasn't being seen by my parents, she was picking on me and she was the one getting me in trouble, that actually most of the problem was her. But around my parents, she pretended to be the good one. This is kind of relates to how we cleaned our bedrooms. Mom and dad would say, Allison, go clean your bedroom. And she'd go, oh, yes, ma'am and go back to her room. And she'd sit there and read. She probably wouldn't clean it, but she'd be very polite and kind. Mom and dad would tell me to clean the bedroom, and I'd say, no. And then we'd fight, and we'd argue, and eventually they'd say, go clean your bedroom, and I'd do it. We have different ways of relating to uh, authority, to the action that authority demands. We have different ways of relating to what it means to be uh, acceptable in the sight of others. Uh, we, We are just about as opposite as you can be in how those things happen. Uh, We we still see this today. Uh, In work, there is not a form that Allison fills out that is not perfectly dotted and crossed and eyed and teed, right? Uh, I'm the one that frustrates Teddy Ray because I'm like, this is good enough, let's go with this. And he's like, no, let's get this perfect. Our text today is about some people who are wrestling with what it means to, to interact with authority and for our behavior uh, to be based on how we understand authority. This passage uh, jumps pretty dramatically from where Tom was last week till today. Uh, We jump in here, and it seems kind of an odd place to move. We're now in the temple, 
And we have the chief priests and the scribes yelling at Jesus, fussing at him about authority uh, and who he is and how dare he. What we haven't read is the material beforehand. Jesus has now ridden in on the donkeys and they have been singing, Hosanna, son of David. Jesus has gone into the temple and driven out those who are selling all the animals and declaring that the temple is going to be torn down. Jesus has now gone out and cursed this fig tree. The chief priest and the scribes now come to Jesus worrying about authority. Jesus has, has done things that you just don't do unless you're a chief priest and you're a scribe. Jesus has come in riding like a king. Jesus has gone and uh, kind of exerted authority over the temple as if he is priest. And he's gone out and done these prophetic sign acts as if he is the prophet. In Israel's history, they aren't ruled by a president. They're ruled by a tripartite theocratic government, to quote Sandy Richter. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And this is uh, kind of the hope of Israel's future, that one day there will be a prophet, priest, and king leading them forward. And Jesus comes on the scene living into all three of these roles yet looking nothing like the chief priests and scribes would want. This begins three weeks, three Sundays, three stories in our gospel of them coming and trying to trap him so that they can get him arrested and killed. This week's trapping is, what authority do you have? What authority could you possibly have? He dodges the question skillfully, trying to trap them, and then he gives them this great parable this image of two sons going into the fields, supposed to. One who says, sure, I'll go, and never does. And one who says, no, I won't, and then does. And they're supposed to reckon with the fact that they are like the son who said he would go and then didn't. And the people who are untouchables are the ones who said they wouldn't and then would. I've read this week a lot about uh, uh, this theory confirmation bias, that we look for information that supports what we believe to be true, and it's hard for us to hear other information. Uh, I read about uh, kind of uh, all these different examples, and one uh, really struck with me, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, 1846, a Hungarian physician working at John Hopkins University. Uh, this is the advent of the scientific physician. They're moving away from things like bloodletting and trying to balance the spirits inside of you to actual scientific medicine. The way they're doing this is they're practicing autopsies between their regular work. So you go and you take care of a patient and then you go do some more autopsies. You go in and you pull apart the insides and try to figure out what's going on. And so he is trying to make a name for himself by looking and identifying a problem. His research uh, issue is why do so many women die during childbirth for doctors? They're dying like crazy over here for the doctors, but most of them are living over here for the midwives. Why? It's got to be the positioning. Midwives have the women give birth on their side and doctors on their back. So let's try all of us doctors moving the women to their sides and see if our outcomes improve. It doesn't work. He then looks around and realizes that in the midwife section, 
They keep it very calm and quiet. If there is a problem, a priest comes in very quietly and prays. On the doctor's side, it's uh, frenetic energy. And if something bad happens, a priest comes in ringing a bell across the whole unit. And so his theory is maybe this bell is literally scaring these women to death. So let's get the priest to stop ringing a bell. Of course, that has no impact on their outcomes. Then he has a third hypothesis. We're doing a bunch of autopsies and these midwives aren't doing any. Could there be some kind of transmission of something between these autopsies and us giving, uh, doing these labors and deliveries that's causing these women to die? What if we try washing our hands with chlorine after we finish our autopsy and before we go and deliver this baby? So they try this experiment. In shock of all shocks, the women stop dying. It's problem solved, right? We're going to just start washing our hands with chlorine from now on, and we're going to have these great outcomes. It lasted one week. At John Hopkins Medical Center in 1846, it lasted a week that the doctors would wash their hands in between because in their minds, they knew what they were doing. It didn't matter that evidence showed anything different. It didn't matter that they could even see better outcomes. They knew what was right. And so even to this day, we see that hand washing is one of the most important things in the hospitals, right? Uh, yet we're told, watch when somebody comes in the room and if they didn't wash their hands, ask them to. Confirmation bias. These doctors thought that they knew what was right and any evidence wasn't going to change their mind. The chief priests and the scribes thought they knew what was right and nothing was going to change their mind. They had seen John the Baptist go out and baptize people and they had seen the Spirit come upon Christ. They had seen things happen. And these heirs of the promise could not change their minds. But the tax collectors and the sinners, those who the world said were untouchable, same, saw the same baptism of John and they had a baptism for repentance and they repented. They saw Christ come and they heard his message and they changed. Jesus didn't come and threaten their power. He came and threatened the power of the establishment. And so they rebelled and they questioned and they pushed and they pushed him to death. Whereas the tax collectors and the sinners, they found life in Christ. For being honest, how many of us have confirmation bias about most things in our life? If you flip to the other news channel than the one you normally watch, it's all junk, right? It's all made up, it's all fake. But if you watch your channel, that's great news. If you read your newspaper, it's exactly right. That's exactly how that should have happened. But if you read their newspaper, oh, that's all made up. If you think one side about Breonna Taylor, you think, ah, oh, this is just right. If you think another, this is just wrong. If you think one thing about racial justice, it's this, and one thing about another. If you think one thing about God or something else, we are hard to change our minds. We're hard to trust in authority, even if we see that it is right and good. Our world needs us to get outside of these world-based confirmation biases that we have. 
if we have any other sense of authority other than the risen Christ, the same one who appeared to the chief priests and to the scribes, the same one who appeared to the tax collectors and sinners, we're going to be wrong. If our political party is the source of our authority and the one through whom we think everything is right, we are always going to be disappointed. If our family of origin is the source of authority and we always think what they told us and taught us is right, we're going to be sadly disappointed. Our world is getting more and more polarized and we're forcing everybody into two categories and most of them do not fit within the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there's not a political party that is preaching gospel. We can't be lockstep with either one and think, ah, this fits with what Jesus taught us. There isn't a new source in the world who understands what the kingdom of heaven is doing. If we're starting with any other posture than God and himself revealed in scripture are the authority in our lives, we're going to find ourselves living in confirmation bias. We're going to be rejecting the very authority that should be speaking into our lives, and we're going to be acting on our own instincts instead of on God's revelation. We're going to be like the son that said, sure, okay, but we're never actually going to make it to the field. I don't want to pretend this isn't hard work to shift our starting point. Um, I've gone through two major worldview shifts in my life, and uh, in both instances, I lost friends and lost uh, acquaintances and lost activities that I love uh, because these major shifts in worldview came and I realized that these things that for, for most of my life had just been okay were not. Jesus is love, Right? Jesus is sweet and tender, but Jesus is also a prophet who comes with a hard message that's going to ask us to do hard things. Jesus is going to come and ask us to submit ourselves to his authority even when it is a little bit scary, even when it has a cost or a price. Even if we push back and say, no, I'm not going, he's going to invite us to go. I am grieving at our world. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but it's getting nasty fast. If we participate in the rhetoric on the basis of what we think is right, on the basis of those authorities we've had, anything outside of Scripture, we're just contributing to that. We're making it worse and we're causing harm. But if we could humble ourselves like the tax collectors and sinners and go to the one who offers us freedom and life, I believe we can show the world something better. I believe that the world could start to get glimpses of what it could be and what it will be. Jesus at all these points is going to dodge what the authorities think is the actual question. They, they think what they need to do is trap him and kill him. Because they think that'll stop him. But they don't understand that this is actually going to be the very thing that leads to his kingdom being inaugurated. 
Jeremiah read us from Philippians 2, this great Christ hymn, that though he was God, he took on the form of human and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. The very thing that the authorities thought would stop him is the thing that now offers us life. The very thing that offers us hope. And frankly, it's the very action that the world needs to see. Who is authoritative in your life? What is authoritative in your life? Does it change your behaviors? Does it just reinforce what you already believe? If your answer is anything other than the God who took on flesh in Christ, who informs us daily by the Spirit, I'd invite you to consider that. To come to the table wherever you are and encounter the risen Christ, the one who asks us to go into the field.